I am the White Dragon. And this is Sir Briz. You are listening to the Beyond Unreal Podcast, episode 22. Where to begin? All right, so Epic was able to put together a build for us. I was a little afraid there for a second, but yeah. they pulled it through. <laughs> it was a close call, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the build this week has some really interesting changes in it. Let's start out with the bio-rifle. <laughs> yes. Everyone's the bio favorite rifle. weapon, <laughs> Well, the and the bio-rifle has been something they've been toying around with lately. Um, yeah. If you've played the last couple of builds, you know that the primary fire was like machine gun fire, bio-rifle <laughs> globs, which uh, we talked about a couple of episodes ago, and it was fun. This week, what they decided to do was they returned the primary fire back to its original state, which is uh, a slower fire rate and a little bit higher damage. And this week, if you hold down the primary fire and then hold down the alternate fire, it will fire a rapid fire, smaller globs that slide on the ground. It's a very strange change. Yeah. The, the other big thing is that you can link bio globs together, right? With yes. the link gun. So they added this web mechanic basically you can shoot bio globs onto the wall and then pull out your link gun and use the alt fire on the link gun to join the globs together with a web i think the idea here is that you could create traps over doorways and things like that with the web and when people ran into them it would do damage to them just in messing around with it a little bit it seems like it takes a long time to set up a web and it doesn't really give you a huge advantage by setting it up. I'm struggling to see the usefulness of it in the state that it's in right now, but it is an interesting mechanic. It's worth trying out, at least. Yeah, well, I think it's very much in the spirit of the Gugun in the past, and I say that because it's completely useless. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but it, there's just no advantage to trying to set up the trap. I have a couple of problems with the way this works. So the first thing is is that it just re requires so many resources to set it up. I've noticed that when a CTF team actively tries to set up webs, that they do worse. <laughs> because they're sitting there spending all the time dinking around with the Gugan, which is cool and fun. But they're not doing other things that are important like going and getting power-ups and maintaining map control and things like that. But then the issue is is that you set up that web and you spend all this time and then the attacker comes and he just translocates past the web or he shoots a rocket at one of the blobs and the whole thing is gone. Yeah, or even worse, one of your own teammates bumps into it and knocks the whole thing down. <laughs> Taking a web down is extremely easy right now. I mean, it's not really a trap because you can see it's there and the pieces that connect the web together are so obvious that getting rid of the web is inconsequential. I mean, yeah, somebody might bump into it. With the way that it's set up right now, you don't gain a huge advantage by somebody bumping into the web. Sure, they take a little bit of damage, but you know, if we were talking about a, a competitive CTF match and that person was going for the flag, they would already be stacked up. Yeah. That web's not going to do much to them. Well, they're never, you're never going to touch the web in the first place, though. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's this huge, bright, glowing web, and it's stationary. Nobody's going to run into that. 
You have so much control over your movement. If if I can, you know, do 360 degree headshots, I think I can avoid a stupid web standing in the doorway. <laughs> and but not only that, I mean, it would be one thing if it actually required effort to take them down so that if somebody put a web over a doorway, I really can't get through that doorway. But right now, that's not what happens. You can translocate past it or you can just shoot a rocket and it's gone. Well, and if you consider the amount of time it takes to set it up, the amount of time it takes to knock it down is way (laughs) out of balance with how much time (laughs) it takes to set up. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with it right now. If it was easier to set up or harder to knock down, then it might be a bit different. But because it's extremely easy to knock down and it's a huge amount of effort to set up, it's kind of just a cool thing that you can do that doesn't really add anything to the game right now. Yeah. Now, going back to the other modes of the Guggen, though, I have some issues with the way that they changed those as well. So one of the big ones is that the Gu kind of slides along the ground now. And the reason why that's an issue is the way that you damage players with the Guggen is by shooting it into their path so that they walk into it. And if the goose slides along the floor, then it just slides past them. So having it, having it slide like that really isn't very useful. I would rather it just stick where I shot it at. But then the other thing is, is I feel like what they did with their primary just made it too complicated. I, I don't find much use for the primary fire as it is. I just don't think it's very effective. And But then I have to you know press both buttons to do the fire mode that I actually is kind of useful and it just seems overly complicated to me. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the tactical uses of the bio-rifle in the past, it's hard to find a scenario where the primary fire gives you a net benefit for its use. If the goo gun is all that you have in previous games, generally what you're doing is charging up the the alternate fire to maximum and running around hoping for finding another weapon that you can switch to as soon as you shoot the alternate fire Mm -hmm. and in ut3 that was especially so because the goo was a little magnetic it seemed like it was really easy to get it to stick to people and it and it was really satisfying to kill with but that doesn't seem to be the case with the gun right now so i think from that perspective the reason why they're toying around with primary fire on the bio rifle is because in past games it was pretty useless i kind of liked the machine gun primary fire and the reason why i liked it really had nothing to do with the amount of damage that each bioglob did but the volume of bioglobs that you could shoot out and when you were in a combat situation with somebody that was using the primary fire on the bio rifle it was kind of tense because it was almost impossible to avoid hitting bioglobs when they were shooting them at you it increased the intensity and made it harder for you to focus on what you were doing. And I think that that was actually a benefit to that mode. Now, was it perfect that way? Maybe not. But the state that it's in right now, the thing that I think is a little bit frustrating is the sliding bioglobs don't actually give you that same kind of advantage. When you're shooting rapid fire with the sliding globs, they just slide along the ground until they hit a wall or something. It's a lot harder to just lay down globs all over and make it really difficult for somebody to not hit them. They just slide away. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I we've eviscerated it 
pretty thoroughly here, but we do have to realize that they are just prototyping. And I, I doubt, given the state that it's in right now, that it was really considered to be something that was that was seriously competitive or anything like that. It was just to test it out and see how people reacted to it and then see if they could turn it into something that might actually be useful from there. The thing that I would say, though, is if you want to have a mechanic like this that's useful, and the things that are cool about it is it requires two weapons to do, and it adds additional tactical opportunities and things you have to think ahead with. But if you really want it to be used, it has to be something that you can do on the fly in an actual combat situation, or it won't get used straight up. Let's talk about the maps. Well, let's let's talk about Outside first, because uh, we know that map pretty well now. <laughs> yep. They made a few changes to it. First one was they removed a bunch of health from the map, um, and specifically the health vials. So there was some health vials kind of close to the flag, and there was also some health vials in the center of the map on some of the pillars, and they got rid of those completely. So the only vials are the ones on the bridge by the shock rifle. They also got rid of the thigh pads. So what this does is it makes it quite a bit more difficult for a flag carrier to stack up on health. So it's a little bit easier to get the flag return. But I think the other consequence of it is that the shield belt is a lot more powerful in that map now. Like it's pretty much before I was just kind of toying around and having fun. Now it's like I'm timing I'm timing the shield belt because it's just that powerful in that map. And another thing is that they made a change this week so that you can't telefrag somebody with the shield belt, which makes it even more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a huge change. Basically, what you're saying is that anybody who's running around with a shield belt on, and, and, and just to clarify on this mechanic, you not only cannot telefrag them, but if you even try to telefrag them, it, it telefrags you. you. Yep. That's actually a quite significant change to the functionality of the shield belt. In previous games, you could take somebody who had fully stacked armor and fully stacked health out with one shot if you could telefrag them. And that is a lot more challenging now. In fact, if you see somebody carrying the shield belt, you'll probably actively avoid translocating really close around them because the chances of you getting killed are significantly higher. Yep. So both of those things together make the shield belt really powerful. Now, other things going on on that map, this is on CTF Outside, the way that people were playing the map before, it made it really easy for somebody to cherry-pick the flag. The strategy that a lot of people were using on the map was to go behind the flag kind of in the waterfall area and just hang around back there and kill people that had just freshly spawned and pick up the health vials that were just hanging around back there. And they could stack their health up pretty significantly by the time the flag got captured on the other side or returned and snag the flag and take off again. And having your health stacked up that much from that point was actually a huge benefit because it gave you the ability to go down the chute. If you weren't stacked up and tried to go down the chute, you were putting yourself at a high risk because the chute is kind of long and it is a prime spot for shock tape. That aspect of flag running on outside is now diminished significantly because of taking the health files out. Yep. 
you know, on on the uh, the spawn killing because there you really can spawn kill in that map. Um, it doesn't work a good against good players, but you can do it. So if you're one of those guys that's out there doing that, screw you. I hate you. <laughs> uh, but they they maybe should move around some of those spawn points to make it a little harder. Yeah, I mean, in outside it's really easy, and because of the way the weapons are positioned and the spawn points in relation to them it requires some finesse to get a weapon and start shooting somebody in a proper order of events for you to actually have an advantage over that person yep and before of course with the health vials it was even worse because they could stay alive a lot longer with a lot more people attacking them but even right now because the rockets are back there they can just con- constantly be restocking their rockets and just mm-hmm. plowing through people that are respawning for me it, it's not even that i die all the time from people spawn killing back there it's just when you're playing ctf and you're trying to keep them from being able to cherry pick the flag you're going to at- be aggressive and attack them but that part of the map gives them kind of an advantage against you when you've just freshly spawned. Yeah, well, and it's it's a minor annoyance that, you know, you can translocate away from it. You can go towards the from the base and pick up the shock rifle and then come back and get them. But, you know, it's something that might delay you just like two seconds. And those two seconds can count when you're trying to prevent the other guy from making it back to the other base. Yep. For instance. So, I mean, they're interesting changes on outside. And I, I think that especially removing the health files behind the flag was a good change. Yeah. Another thing that they did is they lowered the little cave that the U damage is in. Another good thing, I I noticed a lot of times people were having a hard time getting up into there with the translocator even because it was so high. Yeah. Well, they specifically tried to make it so that you could shoot grenades up there. Yeah. Um, And I, I think... In last week's podcast, you can see a couple of places where I tried to do it and I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I, I think that's good. It, t- it takes a risk. You don't want to hang up, hang out in there anymore. Yeah. And they also shrunk the depth of that cave a bit to make grenades a little bit more useful mm-hmm. in there. So it, it's a bigger risk to go in there and get the U damage than it was before. And I think that's a good thing. Yep. Okay. So now that we're done talking about outside, there's also a new map called... <laughs> Blink. Yes. And it is a quite large map. It's, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, it's funny because in the patch notes they said it's a medium-sized map. And I'm like, that's pretty what big. Are, oh, what well, do they think a large map is? That's- vertebrae. It's not vertebrae from UT3. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and, and it's not even necessarily so much that it's big, but it's also very open. Yeah. Like, it reminds me of an Unreal Tournament 2004 map. Yeah, I mean, it, it is huge. I ran around in it for a while. I haven't played an actual match on it. But the one thing that I did notice is I really like the layout. I like there's kind of a canyon back to the flag. And then there's little rooms that branch off of the canyon in various ways to get back to the flag area without having to go straight down the middle. And there's weapons and things in the side rooms. There's little another little canyon and another area and so i really think the layout is really good but it is really large and i i would have to play an actual match on it to say whether it's too large or not but comparing it to outside for example it's significantly larger than outside and it's quite a bit more open than outside as well yep yeah there's not any like 
specific strategy on the map that really stands out to me yet. But I do do say that there is some really good interconnectivity in there. So as a flag runner, you have a lot of good options to, you know, make yourself hard to find. Yeah. It's kind of nice. It reminds me a little bit of some bombing run maps because the canyon back to the flag is kind of a lower canyon. And then the flag is up kind of on a bridge area. It actually plays really well to the strengths of the translocator, the way it's implemented right now, I think, because it is a long long throws with the translocator don't get you very far. For example, on outside, you can get from flag to flag with the translocator in like six seconds. Yeah. In, In blank, that's not really possible. It will take you quite a few throws to get across. And the reason for that is because there's not really a good direct path from flag to flag. You have to kind of go around some corners and things like that, but it might only take you 12 seconds. For all I know, I haven't actually timed it, but it's not as short as outside Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, and I would keep in mind, I think we've mentioned this before, but many people don't realize that if you want to travel as fast as possible with the translocator, it's better to do long throws. The reason you can travel faster with the translocator is because of how fast the disc travels. The more time that the disc spends in the air, the faster you will actually be. Yeah. So instead of translocating like a madman, let it coast a little bit and you'll get a little faster. And that will help a lot on that particular map. Yep. You know, one other thing we do want to mention is there is quite a few netcode fixes. So um, in terms of weird, quirky behavior, like some of the things that we were seeing last week, I think you might have noticed in the podcast there's a couple of hitches and no hits and stuff. I'm not seeing a whole lot of those this week, but there's still, there's still something about the net code. It, you know, the, the thing that bothers me right now is I feel like things hit me sooner than they should. Yeah. It's hard to deconstruct the net code. And I kind of sympathize or have a little bit of sympathy for Steve Polge because debugging something like this has got to be a huge pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) But there's always a trade-off when you build ping compensation. You have to trade off between does what the person who's shooting does matter more than the person who's being shot at. Even with the rewind system that they've built, which in my opinion is probably one of the best ping compensation systems that I've seen, I feel like what we're still doing is favoring the person who's shooting more than the person who's trying to avoid being shot. And that has a serious effect on the gameplay. And, and for me, it was something that really damaged UT 2004 when people started using UT comp a lot, which was a, which had NuNet in it and NuNet very much favored the person shooting over the person being shot at. There still is kind of that, vibe or functionality in this netcode, it's significantly improved. Like the effects of it aren't as obvious as they were in other forms of ping compensation, but it does feel like it's causing a little bit of wonkiness. Now I have to qualify everything I say because I have a little bit of bias in this area exclusively because in the version of UT that I spent the most time with was UT 2003. And in that game, I played with a with a very unstable connection, we'll say, yeah. and I had to get used to accounting for my connection as opposed to trusting that the game was going to do what I told it to do. And because of that, I have a hard time adapting to 
pain compensation that tries to be perfectly accurate into what I'm doing. So some of the wonkiness that I feel in this pain compensation is because I have a hard time not accounting, trying to account for my connection. Now, there are still times where I feel like I did not hit that person intentionally and my shot still registered, especially with projectiles that seems to be happening right now. And that is probably where the major frustrations come from, rockets that you don't see coming or two rockets that hit you where the second one seems like it came way faster than it should have been able to. Yeah, I mean, for me, the issue is all about timings. So there's situations all the time where I die to a rocket And, like, I didn't even see the guy fire it. It was like, where did that rocket come from? Or, you know, with NuNet, the issue was that you would go behind a corner and then you would still die. In this one, it's somebody else comes around a corner and you die before they even came out of the corner. There are situations where I've had people, you know, translocate somewhere and then hit me with the sniper rifle way faster than it seems like they should be able to. And I kind of feel like there's this disconnect, like there are some things that are compensated differently from others. And so the timings on them, what you perceive as the timing from that user is different from what you perceive as the timing for you. So it it seems to me like they can switch and hit me with that sniper rifle a tenth of a second sooner than they should be able to. And it's very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously some difference in the way that projectiles are predicted versus the way hit scan is predicted. And there's also obviously something going on with the way that movement is shown on your own screen. Mm-hmm. And all of those three things working together, I think that it's just a real challenge figuring out how do we compensate for somebody's connection speed, but also be the most accurate that we can be in showing them what's happening. In previous UTs, Epic's approach was kind of more geared towards what you see on your screen as what's actually happening. And so from that perspective, this is a pretty big departure from what they've done in previous games. But there are some strange things in the way different things interact. There's there's enough still there that that people complain about. Although they're going to have to compensate for it within the weapon balance for sure. Rockets right now are just way too powerful, in my opinion, still. I still think the primary culprit is the refire speed on it, but they just travel too fast with this netcode and they kill you before you even see them come in. Uh, sometimes I feel like it's really easy to to dodge rockets, but there are lots of rockets in the game right now that you simply cannot dodge. There's nothing you can do about it. Yep. There's a halftime summary now, so during halftime, it will show you a summary of all of the caps that happened, and it will list who made the capture and who assisted. <laughs> halftime still sucks. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I, I, I don't know what to think about halftime still. I mean, I, I can understand where they're going with it, and I, when they're done implementing what they want to do with halftime, maybe it'll make more sense to people why it's there. I still think that in that ultimately they're going to have to make it an option. Yeah. And, and I'll turn it a off. lot of people will turn it off. And uh, But I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of what it's riding on is whether people can actually come up with asymmetrical maps that are good that people consider good 
and if halftime actually makes a significant difference in maps like that. If they can do that, then I could see halftime being more popular, but that's something that nobody's even tried to do yet. Yeah, yeah. All right, so on the community topic this week, we wanted to talk about the programming side. So Riz has been doing quite a bit with mutators this week. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I knew that mutators kind of worked, and I just wanted to figure out how to get them built and everything. And and it, it was hard, and I had to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> and there's things that are still kind of wonky with it. But I was able to make a, a couple of mutators. The one that I really want to advocate for people to use on the podcast, though, is I made one that's called the Movement Prototyper. And basically what this does is it gives you an INI where you can change any movement value. And you can share that INI with other people and let them see your movement changes. And the advantage here is that anybody who doesn't have an engine subscription that wants to tweak around with the movement settings and try to find something that feels good can go and take this mutator and and change the values to whatever they want and show people here's what I think the movement should be like. This is something that before was exclusively for people who had a subscription and could modify the blueprint values. So anybody who downloads a game now can toy around with the movement values and try to come up with something that feels good to them. A lot of people have said the movement still feels really bad. Take this opportunity to go in and change the values and find something that makes it feel good to you and and show it to other people so they can either agree or disagree on it. The whole point of this was to empower the community and let them do things that normally you'd need the engine subscription for. I hope people will take advantage of that. So the other mutator that I created is UT2004 movement mutator. Uh, a lot of people raise an eyebrow at me releasing this. Well, okay, let's say it. So, uh, something that I feel like a lot of people never quite understood about us. Our background is we were competitive CTF players in Unreal Tournament 2003. Yep. Okay. It was a small community. There was maybe like 20 clans. And uh, we were both in probably top 10 clans. I played for Frag System. Briz played for Carpe Imperium. We really like Dodge Jump. I just, I personally watched it decimate the community in 2003 and saw how controversial it was since then. And after 2004, I said, you know, I, I, I think I would rather have it for everybody else's sake to be like this. But it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy playing it with that way. So I'm yeah. really glad that we have this mutator out there. I, you know, we've always said to people, if you have an idea, prototype it and make it happen because there's absolutely no reason that you can't play like that yeah. and prove to everybody that it's good. Well, now now everybody has a chance. Now, I don't think that this mutator is going to make it into the full, full game, but it sure is fun. Well, and to clarify that, I don't think this mutator is going to change Epic's mind on the core movement. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're committed to the way it is right now. But this could turn into a, a stock mutator that changes the movement in the way that some people like. And if that's available in the game and people enjoy playing that way, I think that's great. I think people should be able to play however they want. And I am somebody that really enjoyed Dodge Jump and 
my problems with it mostly stem from how it was how Dodge Jump affected UT two thousand four because I felt like it was more balanced in two K three. Yeah. But all of that discussion aside, the Dodge Jump mutator that I created is actually pretty fun. Yeah. It's entertaining to run around levels with the with the dodge jump and see what kind of trick jumps you can do. Now there are some areas of the maps that we have right now where I personally feel like you can make jumps that you shouldn't be able to make with the dodge jump mutator. Oh yeah. It's, it's fun to break maps. It's like... <laughs> but, but it's fun. And I don't think that it breaks maps in significant ways. Now it does let you do things that I'm guarantee you the map person that created that map did not want you to be able to do, Mm. but that's not necessarily a bad thing and running around in focus and ASDF and such with dodge jump is, is a lot of fun. And I'm sure that if you were to set up a server with people playing on it, they would enjoy it. And I would come, I would come. Yes. We actually, (laughs) so another side announcement, we should have mentioned this at the beginning, but so we, we are going to be expanding the mothership. So there's going to be a second server instance now, and we're going to try and use that for more testing. Yeah, it'll still be running the the weekly builds, but we'll try to throw more custom content on there and and have times when we're specifically testing specific things. I think what we're going to do, and, and I don't know if this is going to pan out or not, but I think what we're going to do is try to post when we're going to test specific things and how to get your build set up so that you can test them with us. And then people can come and try out the different custom things with us when we do that. Yep. Yep. So as you made these mutators, what were some of the challenges? Because I know that the community is in need of more programmers. I'm a programmer myself, but I just don't have the attention span (laughs) to, to program when I'm not at work. It's hard enough to get me to pay attention when I'm at work. <laughs> but, you know, with the little bits that I have done, it's it's frustrating trying to, you know, sometimes things don't build and then you want to make a pull request. There's there's some challenges with that. What what are some things that you think we need to, to work on and get past to make it easier to get more programmers involved? So, I mean, the GitHub workflow is really challenging right now. And a big part of that is because there's so much binary content in the repository. The repository is like eight gigabytes right now. And updating your fork and all that takes a significant amount of effort. Now, if you do it every day or every other day, you're not going to run into the trouble I had, which was downloading a gigabyte and then uploading a gigabyte before I could even submit a pull request. So there is that challenge and then just knowing how to work with GitHub and and with Git in general. And I had to tweak around with it to get it to do exactly what I wanted it to do. The other thing is that you can't really use the binary engine builds in order to program the game. And several people, Raxi and a few other people, told me that none of the developers are running the binary editor while they're developing. So because of that, you basically have to build the engine manually in in order to get your environment set up. And that was a a big pain. And then the third thing is, so the way that I've settled on developing right now is I do all of my development on the Epic repository, my clone of the Epic repository. And then I get my, fork into a good state or I create a new branch, copy my stuff into that branch, commit it all and push it all up and then open a pull request off of that branch. 
the advantage to that is it leaves me free to do whatever I want on the master, the master branch of my fork. And so I've been able to open a couple of pull requests that way without having a bunch of weird commits in there. But it is a frustrating experience right now. It's hard to get your environment set up just right. And I put a post on the forums trying to figure out how different people have their workflow set up because I haven't really found a good workflow for debugging and all that stuff right now. Yeah. And Well, for me, um, uh, there's been several times where, yeah, in order for me to debug, I had to build the editor. I would go into Visual Studio, I would tell it to build the editor, and then I would start the game from within the editor, and then I would debug from there. And that's kind of a pain because then it takes longer to build the editor for starters, and then you have to wait for the editor to load, which is you know a pretty big process and going into it. And then when you are in it, the game doesn't run quite as fast because you're using up more resources. Yeah, yeah and, and the other thing too is that... Uh you can't build for multiple platforms all at one time right now. You have to build for each platform individually. And it there's a lot of time just sitting and waiting for things to compile. It's definitely not the nice experience of previous UT games where you just ran UCC and let it build the Unreal script files into a, a .u for you. And where I'm at right now, it's not too terribly difficult to build up a mutator and compile it into something that I can run on the packaged build. And so my workflow right now is more based around getting a DLL dumped out that I can copy over to the packaged build and test it out over there. So mm-hmm. I don't have a good workflow set up right now for actually testing the game. I'm still trying to figure that part of it out. But in terms of getting mutators built, I have a pretty good workflow set up. Cool. All right. Well, I guess that's all we have for this week. As always, like and subscribe to our channel. We have FragBU every weekend at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Good turnout this week. Had a lot of fun. Uh, We'll see you next week.